Clear prop. Star 73 is Cherokee, number two, following twin traffic, three mile final. There's one trailer Bravo, Rakesford in runway 25, going uh, four mile final. This is Behind the Prop with United Flight Systems owner and licensed pilot Bobby Doss and his co host, major airline captain and designated pilot examiner Wally Mulhern. Now, let's go Behind the Prop. What's up, Wally? Hey, Bobby, how are you? I am fantastic, as always. We are here today recording just a couple days before the show is going to be released, but it is a significant day. It is, as we record on it, September 30th, 2022, exactly two years to the day after we started this podcast, Wally. We released our first show October 1st, 2020, and it has been a lot of fun, and we've had a lot of downloads, almost 100,000 downloads, lots of listeners all over the world, and Today we are going to pay homage to those listeners and answer some questions that we've got, make some shout outs to some of our listeners, and hopefully you guys and girls all around the world will love the show. So first call out, uh, we have some listeners again all over the world, but we had a, a gentleman named John from Hereford, England, ask us to call him out. So John, there's your call out. And uh, if we get a thousand emails for other call outs, we'll try to do what we can, but uh John, thanks for listening. Hopefully you're sharing with other aviators over there, and we appreciate your support of the show. Now let's get into some of the questions and stuff, Wally. But before we do that, tell me a little bit about what the show's meant to you over the last couple of years, Wally. It was new to you. I had podcasted before, but what's it like for you to be a podcaster for two years? Uh, it, it's been a, it's a, been a real good experience. It's it's caused me to dig down and uh, and learn more and yeah you know that's that that's what we want to do we want to make better pilots safer pilots um just spread information and it's made me um do some research you know i don't want to sound like an idiot on here which sometimes i do but um you know i i've i've had to dig into the books in in some cases which is which is good um it's just been um the the email the feedback from the listeners um i I, nobody i I guess the worst complaint we've gotten or that i've read is um you guys always talk about foreflight you never talk about garmin and um um well maybe maybe we do talk about foreflight a little bit more than we talk about garmin pilot but um if if that's the worst that we get i mean golly the 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 emails are very complimentary so uh, we appreciate that, and and um, you know, if, uh, show ideas. We're we're always looking for show ideas. So, please keep the emails, keep the comments coming. We we do read them, we discuss them, and we appreciate them. That's true. So one of these came through from a conversation I said yesterday with a veteran who was looking for some information. Found the show, found us. Doesn't live anywhere in the Houston area, but was asking some questions about some VA programs. And as we were about to hang up the phone call, uh, he said he had a, a show idea. And he said, look, I don't think there's really enough information or resources out there on how to best prepare for a knowledge exam. And I think that's something that everybody's looking for a, I don't want to say shortcut, but a means to a better way to get prepared for a knowledge exam. I think uh, you've probably seen it, Wally. I know I've seen it. There's always a lot of angst. I think there's a student pilot here that has told me maybe no more, no less than a 50 times that he was going to take it next week. 
and I doubt he still has taken that written exam. Right. Phil, you listening? Can you hear me, Phil? Phil? Yeah, that's you, Phil. Um, but there is this anxiety of wanting to get it done, but being afraid that I'm going to make a mistake and fail it. Um, if I ask you that question right off, what's your first thought, Wally? If I say, what, how, was, how would I best prepare for my knowledge exams? I got to take at least six big ones along the way if I want to be a an airline pilot or a CFI to become an airline pilot. Right. Uh, I, I would say that's a great question. And if you know the answer to it, let me know, and then we'll put it out and we'll change the world. Um, the knowledge exam is is a hurdle that you've got to go through to get a particular certificate. And I'll just give you a little bit of my background with knowledge exams. I have never made an 80-something on a knowledge exam. Um, when I first started out, I made 70s. And in fact, I failed my private the first time. I made a 69, and then I went back Oof. and I passed it with a 71. Um, I failed my instrument twice, and then I passed it. I made a 60, a 69, and a 72 on my instrument. Um, I think my commercial I passed the first time with about a 74, and then I figured out how to study for the tests. Then I started making 90s. All my CFIs, I think my ATP written, I made a 98 on. I think I missed uh, two questions on a 100-question test. Um, back in the day, you could buy the, the question bank from the FAA. You could buy uh, the questions, and the questions would have, uh, you know, it would have the question and it would have the four possible answers back in back then there were four possible answers instead of three and and it took me a while to figure out what I needed to do before I even started studying is just go in and highlight the correct answer read the question read the answer read the question read the answer that's when I started making 90s so the problem was early on I was putting wrong answers in my head um, the you know there are a lot of weekend seminars that help you prepare for the uh, the the knowledge test and most of them market themselves they don't call themselves ground schools I don't consider it a ground school when you do a weekend crash course for the private or the instrument or whatever um, it's it's a seminar it's a a, a course for that knowledge test. Uh, my my frustration with the knowledge test system is that I I believe that there's uh, maybe 20% of the questions on the knowledge test I don't believe and again this is my opinion I don't believe make you a better pilot by knowing the answer to that they don't make you a better safer pilot do I need to know that it's NTSB Part 830 that we deal with as pilots what, what why does that number matter True. Um, but uh, it's it's on some of the knowledge tests. So to get that question right, you need to know that answer. Um, but again, I don't I don't believe it makes us safer. I don't make think it makes us any better. You know, when I ask on a a um, private pilot test, I'll talk about an airplane being out of annual. It's two days out of annual. How can we get it back to our home base? And what I'm looking for is a special flight permit. A lot of times the applicant will call it a ferry permit. They'll say, um, I need to call the, the FISDO and get a, uh, a, a special flight authorization 
the fact that they don't call it a special flight permit, it, that, it doesn't bother me. They understand the concept of getting some kind of an authorization. And, uh, you know, I, I, at, at the end, we'll talk about, well, it, technically it's called a special flight permit. Um, I think they understand the idea. Um, you know, I think if we went in, you go to a, to a doctor and, and you, you maybe say something that's medically not correct, as long as you can explain what you're trying to relate to the doctor, the doctor understands it, I would hope, anyway. Yeah, I think that's uh, the real world, but if I was the one writing the test, you, you have to give three multiple choice answers. One of them is going to be exactly right, and the others are going to be a little wrong. And right. you know, I can see how the test writer may struggle with that. But I do think there's a lot of old questions, maybe um, some non-applicable questions for the greater good. Right. And it would be nice to see. And, and I think the FAA is working on trying to make that better. They're doing a number of test questions, et cetera. To the point of how to prepare, for me, I'm a big fan of King Schools, um, I'm sure, there's lots of people out there that are and lots of people that might not be. But at the end of the day, their their mechanism was really good for me. A little snippet video about a specific topic, maybe it's runway markings and then three or four questions right after that that are either the questions or very similar questions that you would see on a knowledge exam. Um, that, that, that works for me really, really well. You can buy test prep courses like uh, Gleam has something. None of these are sponsors, by the way, but Gleam has something. Glime, some people call it Glime. Um, there's a lot of test prep, which are, if not exactly the questions that are on the test, they're pretty dang close and they'll prepare you well. I, I don't think, for me, studying questions and answers isn't what's going to make you a great pilot either. It's just going to help you get through the test. And if you just want to get through the test, do that, memorize it, Shepherd Air is a solution that comes into play once you get through with the private. They don't have a private uh, option, but Shepherd Air is something that's very popular um, for test question preparation and preparing. But the reality is now, and I haven't done it, but I should take the a, a practice test, I think I know the material. Yeah. So I'm going to make a pretty good grade now. And yeah. I don't think, as a private, I really knew the material. Right. <laughs> so. Even even if I memorize the questions, then I'm I'm really having to memorize a lot of information. Right. I think knowing the material is what made a difference for me. And now that I've gone through a few flight reviews and I've gone through a couple IPCs, I think I could go take the uh, private and instrument and probably make mid eighties, low nineties. I'm definitely not going to get a perfect score. They're gonna right. they're gonna give me with your NTSB question that you just assessed. So hopefully that helps. That's from Corey Smith. Uh, who I talked to yesterday about some VA stuff. Hopefully that helps, and not just Corey, but everybody else out there. And I will say, let me just add this to it. Um, I was just made of, aware of a website yesterday. I'd never heard of this before, but I was given a a, a, a young man a check ride, and and he brought his knowledge test results. Of course, we have to uh, uh, ask them questions about the things they missed on the knowledge test, and he had a. Um, kind of a written um, uh, printout of all the knowledge codes um, and, and what it actually meant. Uh, it, this is in addition to his knowledge test report. And, and I asked him, I says, so where'd you get this? And he said, oh, acscodes.com. Um, 
And so there is a website, and it is acscodescodes.com. Again, they're not a sponsor. I don't even know who made this website. But you can go in there, and you, uh, you put your name in it, and you um, put in the knowledge codes of the questions that you missed, and it actually makes a very nice report that you can print out and um, bring it to your check ride, and um, it's going to... It's going to make life a little bit easier for your examiner if you care about that. It's nice for me. So That's pretty cool. I just pulled up the site. Very useful. ACScodes.com. Yeah. Um, the next conversation that came in was from a, uh, I'll call him a repeat offender, somebody we've answered some questions for in the past. We appreciate him coming up with more information. And he asked about the solo endorsement. And he quoted 6187C. And said, "Hey, what's the big deal? Uh, the, the the regs actually say you need to receive training in the make and model, but if I want to fly a 172N, or if I got trained in a 172M, Mike, can I solo in a 172N? And uh, I think the answer to that question is it depends. Wally, what do you think? Yeah, well, legally, yes, you can, but um, most of the solo endorsements that I see." Um, have some restrictions on them. Are those regulatory? I mean, how how those restrictions come about, I guess, is is the topic of this. Yeah, I mean, if if it says that you're illegal to fly solo in a 172, you're illegal to fly in in any 172. Um, um, Most of the ones that I see are a little bit more model-specific. may say you're, uh, you're... okay for solo in a 172 in November and maybe a Papa model. Um, and, and to me, I would interpret that, that if you go out and solo in a 172 S that, that you're, you're not, um, meeting the requirements of that solo endorsement. And, and depending on everybody's listening, flying skill level, there's a big difference between an N and an S. Correct. It could yeah. be as different as G1000S model versus yeah. steam gauge N model. Right. Um, there's a lot of differences that could be in there, right? Fuel injection versus carb rated. You, you may be trained in something that doesn't have carb heat, then you get in something with carb heat. So yeah. I do think that the series at the end of that is important. Yeah. But I would say if the endorsement says you, you're endorsed to fly a C-172, then I would assume you could fly a C-172. Is yeah. it smart? Probably not. Right. You know, if my – I can assure you for sure in my days when I was training, if – the plane I was flying was down. I wasn't going to fly a different plane. It didn't matter if it was an N, an N, an N, and an N. I wasn't going to fly a different plane because I wanted to know where every switch, every button was. But I definitely wouldn't have jumped in a G1000 and took a few laps in the pattern. Right. Um, I definitely wouldn't have done that IFR either. I right. would have flown one steam gauge plane with the same GPS I was used to. I definitely wouldn't have tried to jump in a G1000. Yeah. So I think the question as written really is – Am I legal to fly an M Mike model if I was trained in an N November model? And the, the question is, depends on how your endorsement was written. Yeah, I suspect your flight instructor would write an endorsement in such a way that you were limited by a couple series models that were similar, an engine type, carburetor, fuel systems, etc. Um, and if not, I would challenge you not to get too far from that because that's not a really good idea. Right. Right. 
Okay, moving on. This came in to us from Tom Ainge from New London, New Hampshire. Tom sent us a question about his recent flying. He's been doing a lot of flying in the New Hampshire area, mostly out of uh, Delta Airports, Class Delta. And he has some aspirations and desires to go fly at a Class Charlie airport and wanted some tips and tricks maybe a little overwhelmed or concerned about the communications and what he should do asked us to talk about the processes and there's really not much difference is there wally no you know most most class charlie airports um you'll you'll have an approach control or a departure control whatever you want to call it it's really probably the same person um where a lot of the delta airports you'll go straight to tower um uh you know, it's it's all about communication, effective communication. And um, so if you're going into a Class Charlie airspace, uh, airport, you know, before you go into the, the Class C airspace, you, you, you need to make um, um, communication. You need to communicate with them. Tell them who you are, where you are, and what you want to do. Um, you know, uh, so and so approach control. This is Cessna one two three Alpha Bravo. Two five miles northwest, inbound for landing with information X-ray. Um, and uh, you know they're going to probably give you a squawk code, and uh, tell you what runway to expect. Um, you know, or any other pertinent information that might be there. Um, uh, you know, not a whole lot different from entering a Class D airspace with a control tower. Um, you know, there are some minor differences. You know, like like we always teach that in going into Class Bravo, you have to hear the phrase "cleared into," "cleared into," where the other airports you just have to make contact. You won't hear that. You know, they won't clear you into the Charlie airspace. They won't clear you into the Delta airspace. Um, so going into a Delta airport, for instance, just as long as you make contact, you can call up, say, so-and-so tower or Cessna 123 Alpha Bravo, uh, one zero miles west inbound for landing with Charlie. And if they say 123 Alpha Bravo, stand by, you've made contact. So you meet the requirements. Um, you know, you're just going to have to use some some logic um, of whether, you know, how you want to, to enter the area. But you have made contact, and they have uh, acknowledged your tail number. So you do meet the requirement. In uh, Delta, they, they can just say stand by. My understanding is they can just say stand by. They don't have to say your tail number, okay. and they've made contact, I'm pretty okay. sure. But, Charlie, the test question, back to how to prepare for written exams, you do have to know these little idiosyncrasies and. In Charlie airspace, they have to say your tail number. So if they say uh, air, airplane calling standby, but they don't say your tail number, you're not supposed to enter their airspace. Is the fine print on the Charlie okay. difference? Well, that's good. I just learned something. Um, the uh, but other than that, I mean, that's the only regulation slash um, asterisk that I would say is in Charlie. I would say Charlie probably expects you to be on approach control prior to. Yeah. Like here, 
I could be flying VFR out in the practice area, get within 12, 10 miles, call up the tower, say, hey, all that you just mentioned, and they would acknowledge me and say, expect right base for 1-7 right. Right. Okay, now I know what I'm doing. I'm kind of flying that way. I'm not going to call from the practice area, Houston approach, and say, hey, right. I have a request. I'd like to come to Hooks, blah, blah, blah. But I would think if I was in San Antonio, a little bit busier airspace, Charlie Airport there, I'm probably going to call up approach control and get sequenced in to that process a right. little differently. Not, I don't think it's a requirement. I just think you probably need to be able to do that, right? Yeah. So my advice to Tom would be, look, Practice with approach control into your Delta airports the next few times you fly. And literally, if Delta says your tail number, you could assume you're flying into a Charlie airport. It'd be all the same thing, right? Yeah. And and I think all airports, all areas have some local practices, yeah, if you yeah. will. You know, when I go to different areas to do check rides, not so much on... Uh, private and commercial but instrument check rides i always ask around okay so what's what's the what's the norm how do people go out and do these approaches um it's there's some airports where you just go out and you you line up for the approach yourself and then you call tower um other places you call approach control here in houston if you're going to go out and do approaches um you you probably ought to be on with approach um but always err on the more conservative side. In in other words, uh, when in doubt, call somebody. Let them know. Or, you know, a good example of that is is when I'm flying VFR and I fly over the top of a Delta airport. I'll call them up and tell them, you know, that maybe the top of the Delta airspace for a given airport may be um, three thousand feet, and I'm at thirty five hundred feet or forty five hundred feet, but you know they're going to see me coming over the top of the airport. And I'll just I'll just call them up and I'll say, hey, we're ten miles east. Um, Going to be flying over the top at four thousand five hundred. And uh, you know, usually they they'll just say, Roger. Um, they might give you a squawk code, but more times yeah, it's common not. courtesy, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't cut through someone's house without knocking on the door, right? Right, right. <laughs> so, um, right. Similar common courtesy there for sure. Yeah. Um, all right, Tom, hopefully that helped and uh, keep sharing the show up there in New Hampshire. And I'm going to bet you're not going to do much flying in the next couple of months because it's going to get cold and wet up there. But I'm sure you all have the equipment and you'll, you'll be able to pull it off. So uh, fly safely up there. Next, uh, Wade Thwaite is my best guess. If I said that wrong, you can call and correct me. But um, Wade asked us to talk about teaching an old dog new tricks probably a pretty common story on some of our listeners out there started training back in the nineties, built up 20 hours or so life happened and stopped, came back now almost 30 years, 30 plus years later, now in late forties, mid forties, got 15 hours and just soloed in the last few days and has only seen a steam gauge has aspirations to fly for civil air patrol, possibly in G one thousands and just overwhelmed by all that technology and automation and really wants to know how does he go from the, the, the old way paper charts, everything else that he's done to the new way. And, uh, I, I get this question a lot at the fly school. Um, should I fly G 1000? My airplane and the airlines that I'm going to go to is going to be, I have a bunch of automation and you might be surprised. Not all seven thirty sevens have 
a button for everything you think that it does, right? They're still right. doing some flying up yeah. there. Yeah. Um, while he does do something when he gets up there in the cockpit. Um, but th- there is probably some automation. And, and you might do some things less. You might do less flight planning because you got dispatchers doing some of that stuff, et cetera. But at the end of the day, if you're going to go to any aircraft with systems that you're not familiar with, you got to get familiar with them. And yeah. today's world, I think, we go from – more often than not, we go from a conversation around steam gauge in, instruments to glass cockpits. And the reality is is at least all the information from your steam gauges is on that screen somewhere. Yeah. Um, anything that's required is going to be on there forever. You can't even hide it. And then you just got to learn how to look at it, right? So what would I do if I were you, Wade? I would... I would get on YouTube and start watching some videos first and foremost. If I knew I was going to fly a G1000, I would buy a course on the G1000. You know, you, I think the King schools sell a course for some like 180 bucks and it's nine hours of training on the G1000. Like that seems like that would be pretty thorough. Yeah. And you're paying 20 bucks an hour for that training that you can go back to anytime you want to. Again, not a sponsor, just a fan of their stuff. So uh, if not, I'd go get in a plane with a CFI. At our school, we have a simulator with the G1000 in it, and it's a great way to transition because you can pull one piece of glass off and and put steam gauges up there, take those steam gauges right off that that same simulator you're in and put the G1000 up there and see it in the G1000 and go back and forth, shooting the same approaches, shooting the same VFR flight that you you just flew. Um, Very useful mechanism to go back and forth in that. But... By all means, go get a CFI and go fly the plane uh, on a clear day first. If you are instrument rated, then get some instrument time in it. Um, proficiency is dictated by when you feel confident that you can fly the plane without someone sitting next to you. And I think you'll be surprised how quick some of that information comes to you. Um, nowadays, the bigger problem for me, while is kids come in here want to work and they've never even flown in a steam-gauged aircraft. Yeah. I yeah. caution people, do not just fly the G1000 aircraft out there. You need the fundamentals. You need to know what the vacuum system is driving and, and what is electronically driven. And then you need to transition to the G1000 and understand, is the standby battery required or not required? And right. there's just a lot to it from a systems perspective that you really should know both. Yeah, yeah. and a, as an examiner, you know, a uh, and this, we see this more on instrument rides than anything else. Um, an applicant comes with a G1000. You got to understand that instrument rating that you're you, you're going to get says instrument airplane. It's not it's not a type rating. It doesn't say instrument uh, limited to G1000 or or you know a fancy glass cockpit. It doesn't say that. So. Uh, once you're issued an instrument rating, you are legal to fly tomorrow in an airplane that has one VOR on steam gauges down to minimums. You know, a little bit scary to think about that, but but that's legally what you could do. Um, so And it could be a different plane with fuel tanks you have to switch. And, right, I right, mean, right. There's a lot of variation right, here we are talking right. about. So me and as, as an examiner, I think most examiners, uh, you a lot of the fancy stuff in that G1000 um, – is might not be available to you on this whole check ride. Yeah, good point for sure. Okay, so we were about to record, and always a, f- a flight school full of flight instructors and students. It's always good to poll a few people and ask a few questions. And I asked 
one of our actually getting very senior now. She's been here a long time. Uh, one of our flight instructors named Tara to ask, what what is the biggest problem at a rudimentary level that you seem that you teach over and over and over again, have to talk about over and over and over again. That's like a basic step that we could share with the listeners and try and give them some tips. And it didn't take her long, did it, Wally? No. She kind of no. came up with something really quick, and it was something I wasn't thinking about. She said runways. And I'm like, wow, okay. What does that mean? And we started talking about it, and it really sounds like there is a, uh, a point where 15-hour and less students aren't really thinking about the direction of the runways, the direction of, to get into the runway environment, and really where they're at positionally in the runway world. Now, the reason I think that's her top of mind thing is we, we operate in an airport with three runways and a very unique taxiway system for sure. Um, if you've never gone out and looked at it, there is a, a video series the FAA put out called From the Flight Deck. This airport was one of the first eight that they did. They're doing many other airports around the country now, but From the Flight Deck talks about all the uniqueness of this airport. You know, Depending on which way you're coming from, you, you, it could really look like a runway with multiple taxiways. Yeah. The, the water runway is set at an angle that doesn't make it conducive to take off on when the other runways are in or in working order because it's kind of got more of an angle. I think they meet at less than a mile. You know, if two people were taking off on the big runway and the water runway, the planes would converge in one mile. And there's a big hot spot in the air up there the tower keeps track of a lot. Um, so... I can get why, and there's a lot of student traffic, right? Lots yeah. of CFIs letting students make mistakes on the radios, a tower that is a training tower for the FAA. So it's it's an interesting environment, to say the least. But she brought up a few good points. You know, how do you know if 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 you don't know where the number necessarily is on the on the runway, 17 or 35 at this airport, she talks about some VFR ground markers that she tries to teach her students. You know, if you're on this side of the road, you're probably going to this end of the runway. And if you're on this side of this road, you're probably going to this end of the runway. But situationally, I don't remember being too concerned about the runways and where I was going early on. I I think we fall in this guise of our CFIs handling all that, right? Right. But it is a pretty important point that Tara makes that says, hey, you're the you're going to be the pilot in command. Where are we at on the runway, and where are we going to, and where were we cleared to take off, and is that what the number is on this piece of concrete that we're about to take? Yeah. And uh, I probably didn't think about that much until after I got my certificate. I don't know why, but uh, she brought up a good point. Most of it was situational awareness on getting into the airport from in the air, you know, 1,200 feet, you're three miles out. Where, where is the – if they say left base for 1-7, right – where, where are you at in this little bubble? Yeah. And I think I have heard a lot of people struggle with that. Um, things to do to, to overcome that, I think drawing it on paper, uh, mentally chair flying it, all the, there's really, if you're on the, if you're at this airport and you're on the west side, there's really only four options. I mean, if you're in a fixed wing or fixed wheel airplane, you're going to land on concrete, not yeah. the water. So the water's out. You're either going to get the big runway or the little runway. You're either going to get one seven right or left, or three five right or left. Yeah, it means you got to turn right, turn left, and do a, do some sort of base turning. Right. I think that is a fundamental that we probably don't talk too much about. Yeah. I guess there is a point where you could overfly the field. 
that would be what I'd call advanced, <laughs> advanced technique for a 15-hour pilot. But yeah, there's only four options. I, I, what I would say, you know, as a CFI is, is when, when we're heading toward the airport, I would say to my student, okay, what are you expecting? I'm expecting, you know, and, and before you even uh, call up, a, you know, tower, uh, obviously find out what runway they're landing. Okay, we're, run, we're landing on, on uh, say, 3-5 left, and I'm coming from the west. I would expect that they're going to either tell me to enter a left base for runway 3-5 left or a left downwind for 3-5 left. So if I were to get something like enter a right downwind for 3-5 left, um, that that would entail me flying across the airport and making a right turn to enter a right downwind. I would question ATC. Just confirm you want me to overfly the airport and enter a right downwind, and and you know the controller may say, "Oh no, no, that that's not what I meant. Sorry, I meant I mean a left downwind for three five left." So have in your back pocket what you think is going to happen, and then you know if it's something widely different um, from from what you think um, you, you may just want to clarify it with with the controller um, you know probably the first first lesson in aviation I remember uh, as a, a young boy from my father was him telling me that runways were numbered according to their magnetic direction so as a young kid, even before I even thought of aviation as a career, um, I knew that. And I always kind of played little games with it. You know, when we drive by the airport, I would look at the runways. I mean, it sounds kind of geeky, but that's what I did. So it, it always it came fairly natural to me. Um, and one thing I, I caution people about, and uh, I just ran into this yesterday on a check ride. We were at a, an uncontrolled airport. Most of the Runways here in the Houston area are north-south runways, most of them. Um, so we get runway 36, runway 35, runway 34. Um, and if, you know, if you're maybe in a divert situation, which sometimes we do on a check ride um, and actually go into that airport, if you're, you know, diverting and you're trying to simulate an emergency and maybe you're, you're going in there um, pretty quickly and you don't know the actual runway number. You know it's a north-south runway. Um, worst case, just tell them we're entering a left downwind to the south runway. And I say that because what was happening uh, yesterday with my applicant is we were going into an airport that had a uh, runway 36, and he kept calling it runway 34. Um, and... And I think the danger to that is if I'm in a traffic pattern of an airport that has runway 1836 and I'm using runway 36, 36, 36, and then all of a sudden I hear someone on the radio call up and they're saying runway 34, my assumption is that they're at a different airport. You know, maybe I didn't hear the name of the airport, but I hear them saying they're on a left downwind for runway 34. I'm kind of thinking that it's a common frequency between two airports. And in this case, we, we were at an airport that had other airplanes. So, uh, and and he, he corrected his mistake and used, you know, said the right number. 
But well, we talked about that before being airports that change names, right? right. You know, yeah, uh, that's real dangerous at that yes. point. Yes, if you're stuck on your home home runway number. So yeah, uh, make sure you're saying the right stuff for sure. For yeah. sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode. Um, we enjoyed it. We appreciate all the listeners. We appreciate the global reach that we have in this small office in the back of a flight school in Spring, Texas. Appreciate all the feedback. As always, thanks for listening and stay behind the prop. Thanks for checking out the Behind the Prop podcast. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out online at BehindTheProp.com. Behind the Prop is recorded in Houston, Texas. Creator and host is Bobby Doss. Co-host is Wally Mulhern. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to replace actual flight instruction. Thanks for listening and remember, fly safe. Fly safe.